right, just a couple of introductory notes this morning as we begin. If you're confused uh, to see me this morning, uh, the Malaysia team did leave on Wednesday night, and I dropped them off at LAX. The plan all along was for myself and Isabella to leave tomorrow. So even my brother-in-law saw me yesterday. He's like, what are you doing here? I thought you were in Malaysia. Um, so anyways, yes, Isabella and I are leaving tomorrow for Malaysia. I am getting real lifetime uh, tweets from WhatsApp, according to from the Malaysia team, actually. And so as of just a few moments ago, Jessica Wu apparently saved Isaiah uh, from a cockroach. But I'm getting uh, updates uh, constantly as we go. So thank you for your prayers for the Malaysia team. Hyun preached yesterday at the Sunday service at Christ Bible Fellowship Church. And uh, I heard that it was a blessed time. And so we're looking forward to joining the team uh, on Monday. Well, actually, we'll leave Monday, but it takes us, you know, we get there Wednesday or something like that. Um, but we're looking forward to seeing how the Lord is working in Malaysia. All right, so this week um, is the last of four uh, weeks of teaching in, on um, biblical counseling for myself. Uh, I'll be off into Malaysia for a while next week. Pastor Isaiah is going to take the reins. And then I think I'll be coming back and teaching the last of the eight uh, session series uh, in September. Um, all right, so this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we uh, covered a lot of ground, and uh, we'll do a quick review a little bit later. Um, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, I added a couple of things. So if you have your outline from last week, it's very similar to the outline for this week, uh, the handout. Um, I added a few other points uh, just kind of as a postscript uh, er earlier this week as I was um, going over my notes again. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about the case study. So I'm going to put the case study up here. And you have the case study on the back side of your handouts. Um, case study number three. And it goes like this. Philip comes to you with a question. This is taken from a Christian Counselor's casebook. Here's the situation. I'm single, 25 years old, and attend two churches. I like both of them very much, but I know that I should become a member at one and devote all my energies there. So I've been praying for guidance for a long time, but the Lord still hasn't shown me which church I should join. What do you think I should do? And your, your response, or the counselor's response is, well, what have you done to discern the Lord's will in this matter? <clears throat> and his response, I've mostly prayed a lot that he would show me. I really believe he will. That's fine, but how have you been expecting God to reveal his will to you? Well, the normal ways, I suppose, you know, by little signs and feelings, I want to really know inside where I should be and have a real peace about it. So that's kind of the uh, back and forth between the counselee and the counselor. <clears throat> so the questions <clears throat> that you have on your handout <clears throat> that are projected above, would you consider this a, a crisis situation or rather an opportunity for educational counseling? So, <clears throat> you know, just at, first, at first glance, it doesn't seem to be a crisis situation, right, as a first impression, but maybe an opportunity for educational counseling. Uh, is there a lot more beneath Mike's explanation than seems to appear on the surface? And I would say there is potentially more than what appears on the surface. Um, you know, this is an artificial construct, of course, and so it's, it's written for the purpose of discussion. So you'd have to say just because it's an artificial uh, scenario, of course, there's more beneath the surface. Um, but we don't want to read into too much as biblical counselors, as, as people who counsel one another, um, when somebody gives us an explanation, we want to take them at face value. We may, we may want to ask some questions and investigate, but we don't want to assume that there is necessarily some deep, dark secret uh, behind every discussion that we have with people. But there is potentially more than what appears on the surface. Number three, how would you find out if you think so? <clears throat> uh, letter A. First, I'd ask about why is he attending two churches? What are his reasons? What are his justifications for attending two churches? What is it about each church that he likes or makes him want to be there. I would ask about his relationships in particular with people at both churches, uh, just general congregants, friends, acquaintances, people he knows, 
or um, also leadership? What is his relationship with leadership at, at uh, people at both churches there? Number four, what is your next step in counseling? Uh, I still think you're kind of in the data gathering phase, and I think Pastor Isaiah next week is going to talk a little bit more about the mechanics of biblical counseling, how to go about it, but we're still at the, the data gathering phase, investigating, and so you're like, oh, that's interesting. Well, tell me about this church, and tell me about the other church, and tell me about you know, what it is that you enjoy about each of those churches, and try to get into uh, some of the motivations. Um, so that you're at the data gathering investigation phase. Um, I would also maybe assign him some homework on ecclesiology. Uh, church, church attendance and membership, of course, are not simply finding a place to devote all my energies, as the snippet implies. There's much more to church life than that. So I think educating him or having him educate himself on church life would be a good start. So you could go through a book together. Uh, Wayne Mack's Life in the Father's House is something that our church has gone, together, gone through together, as an example. Um, also listening to Cornerstone series on the doctrine and practice of the church that we just finished up. Uh, would also be a good start uh, for this person. Um, a pot potential area for discussion would be a decision-making process, how to determine the will of God. It's another big bucket to investigate. Phil, uh, the counselor in this situation, he seems to be waiting and looking for signs and feelings and the subjective feeling of peace in order to determine the will of God. Um, so we would recommend, or first we would actually, we would commend him for the prayer that he has submitted to the Lord, he's, it seems like he really wants to do the Lord's will and he's submitted his situation to the Lord in prayer, so we would really commend him and encourage him for that. Um, but also, you know, uh, point out to him that having a peace about something does not guarantee that God approves of this decision. So another big bucket for him would be uh, how to determine the will of God in his life. So that's, that's just kind of a, 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 the case scenario uh, as a, a teaser uh, for you this morning. All right, so I want to do just a quick review of where we've been for the last uh, three weeks. Uh, first session, we, uh, we kind of did more of an expositional pre uh, message on uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And the title of that message was Presenting Everyone Complete in Christ by the Power of Christ, the Heart Foundations of Biblical Counseling. And so we looked at the, mes the message, the method, the manner, and the motivation behind uh, biblical counseling. And we said that biblical counseling is something that we don't just have like a specialist in the church do, but it is something that in order to present everyone complete in Christ, that is a work or it is a goal that requires everyone also to be involved in. All right, that was session number one. Session number two, we did Introduction to Biblical Counseling Part 1. And uh, we talked about the need for biblical counseling. We talked about the epidemic that is going through the United States, and that is uh, anxiety and depression, uh, as defined by the secular psychologists. We defined biblical counseling, what are seven distinctives of biblical counseling. We talked about the theological basis of biblical counseling, and that's rooted in the sufficiency of scripture. We talked about the fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. And uh, the last thing that we covered was the call to biblical counseling. Number six, we didn't really get to. That's why it's kind of um, uh, not highlighted. Uh, we're going to get to that um, in September. Jesus' example of biblical counseling from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, session number three, last week. Um, we spent a fair amount of time just talking about the secular perspective of mental health disorders. And I introduced the idea of the DSM-IV, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual of uh, Psychiatry, um, and just kind of talked about how it's kind of an arbitrary, arbitrarily designed way to quote-unquote diagnose people with diseases, mental health diseases or disorders, uh, again in quotes. And it's fairly arbitrary. Um, uh, just a kind of a committee of people who got together and said, if you say that you have these symptoms, you 
meet the criteria, five out of nine of these symptoms for more than two weeks, then you have major depression. Um, people are sometimes mistaken that there is a scan or a blood test. I got patients all the time who come to me and say like, I think I have depression. How do I, how do you get diagnosed with depression? And I have to talk to them through like, well, it's just kind of a, you know, do you answer these questions, yes or no? Um, all right, so we, we talked about that at, at, at length. Um, and, the, and the object of that and the, and the objective last week was to educate us about secular psychology and, and the perspective um, of the world so that we're not intimidated by their terminology. I think that was the main thing. We did spend a fair amount of time developing how the world um, defines each of these things. And then we talked about kind of the motivation, uh, advertising, we talked about advertising in the pharmacology uh, uh, um, marketplace, if you will. And uh, finally, we talked about science refuting science, how many even secular psychologists and psychiatrists, um, because uh, this whole area is lacking objectivity, there's not a lot of objective, um, qualitative, sorry, quantitative data uh, where they make their claims that there are scientists on both sides of the aisles who say, like, look, the medications definitely help. And others people say, like, well, actually, it, doesn't, it definitely doesn't help any more than um, the placebo effect. So we spent a fair amount of time talking about how science has refuted science in this situation. All right, so that's where we left off. And so today, we're gonna to talk about God's perspective, the mind-body connection, the biblical perspective, biblical principles, the biblical perspective on these various quote-unquote mental health disorders. Uh, Roman numeral seven, if we get to it, Lord willing, we're not fighting mental health disorders. That is not our, our, our call, our mission as a church or as believers. And then kind of as a postscript, as I mentioned, I added uh, a few other um, um, uh, points below that. So we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Where are we now? Uh, God's perspective. Oh, we did that already. Uh, number eight, which I just added this week, areas of discomfort. Uh, number nine, the pitfalls of or cautions for biblical counseling. So biblical counseling, there are some precautions that I would warn us about. Uh, so I wanted to mention those things as well. Okay, so let's talk about God's perspective. Um, God's perspective, uh, we, we mentioned this last week, and uh, we read uh, this extensive text of scripture, but I have truncated it this week here. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so you see here, the second bullet underneath that is psychiatry and psychology are supposed to be the study of the mind and the soul, but they are largely based on conjecture and theories that amount to a de facto religion masquerading as science. And you, if you've ever taken an introductory to psychology class, you hear about Piaget and Jung, Erickson, Freud, and the thing that they say is, oh, Freud believed that the ego was this, or, or Piaget believed uh, that the stages of development were this, right? And so when you start with that, it, you, you know that there's not a lot of objective scientific data, even though they're using the terminology of science, uh, there's not a lot of objective scientific data to, to support their theories. And the Bible says that, right? How would we expect unbelievers of the world to understand, to be able to articulate things that are spiritually appraised, right? Believers, it says right here, believers, who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit to understand these spiritual matters. And so the world is gonna necessarily use their language, worldly language, secular language, to describe what they can, to do the best that they can. And they're doing the best that they can. 
But as believers, as those who have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, we've been given the, the, the word of God, we've been given the Holy Spirit, we understand things that are spiritually appraised. The religion of psychiatry begins with wrong foundation and tenets and ends with wrong conclusions and principles. And that doesn't mean, as I, I said a few weeks ago, it doesn't mean that secular psychology or counseling or therapy can't help people, even Christians, in the short term. I don't want to negate anybody who's been through that before and who said, like, well, this really helped me. I went to this before. Uh, and so I would say that it can help in the short term, right? But long term, the fundamental tenets and the foundations of secular psychology are wrong, and they will necessarily end up in the wrong place. But it doesn't mean that they can't help people short term. Uh, as a um, I would say don't confuse scientific methods and scientific vocabulary for quote-unquote true science. I guess that's the third to last bullet there. As a Christian physician who deals with this, maybe 30% of my practice is mental health, quote-unquote mental health disorders, I would much rather have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit than the DSM and a prescription pad, even though I use the prescription pad quite a bit. God's Word is sufficient and supreme. You don't need initials after your last name to counsel people effectively. We have the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Secular psychology can only guess at the thoughts and intentions of the heart. They have theories, they have conjectures, hypotheses. But the word of God allows us to be able to discern and, and it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. Okay, so that's uh, number two. Number three, the mind-body connection. The mind-body connection, because this is kind of an area where it's a little bit blurred, where there's, well, well, if I have a, you know, a pneumonia, then I need to go see my doctor. But how come if I have anxiety or depression, the doctor is not necessarily the right place to go? And I talked about in the first week of how our society and our culture sees the doctor as priest. It's, the doctor has finally, has uh, eventually replaced the role of the pastor or priest in the life of, of Americans. A hundred years ago, people would be suffering with these things. They'd go see their pastor. Would you pray for me? I'm suffering with anxiety and depression. Nowadays, they come to see me in the secular world. All right, the mind-body connection. Scripture corroborates and affirms the connection between the mind and body. Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. I think it's up there. For when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. We see that's, that's David, uh, when he had not confessed his sin, he had physical manifestations of his sin. Psalm chapter 38, verses 1 to 10 and verses 17 to 18. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. Verse 5, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. And so we see here, even in scripture, that, that, that David and the psalmist here is describing that the root cause of anxiety, the root cause of these quote-unquote mental health disorders is sin, and sometimes unconfessed sin. And I think to me it's amazing that these physical symptoms 
are a result of sinful thoughts and unbiblical thinking. And I'm not necessarily saying that, that, that this person is completely living in sin because we will say that, as we'll see a little bit later, that sin is either the proximate or eventual cause of these symptoms. We'll, we'll discuss that in a second. But the Bible says that these physical manifestations and emotions are because of sin. And so I've seen that in my clinic, where right? we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, that uh, recently I've seen a you know, 37-year-old man, young man, seen in the emergency room for chest pain. I think I have a slide on that. I read that one already. Here's the case. 37-year-old man seen in the emergency room for chest pain. He came to my office one week later with the following complaints. He had cold sensations in his body. He had no appetite. He had headaches. He had insomnia, problems sleeping, numbness in his ears and feet. He had pain in his groin. He had weakness in the hands. He had nausea, stomach aches, feeling tired all the time, back pain, heaviness in his chest, and stress. It sounds like actually a lot of the things that the psalmist described in Psalm chapter 38. He had had examination, labs, and EKG. They were all normal. And his diagnosis was anxiety and depression and panic attacks. So this is just another example, again, of the mind-body connection and how sometimes just our thoughts can lead to very physical symptoms. And they can be very scary. Right? I've had patients who would like, you know, they called 911 three times this week because of panic attacks. Right? It's not uncommon to have very physical and real symptoms that could be a manifestation of anxiety, stress, depression, and things that are going on in the heart. All right. So again, this is the outline. We are now, uh, we just passed number three, the mind-body connection. We're now going on to biblical perspective, biblical anthropology. And under this section, just want to mention that there are really two types of people in this world, right? Believers and unbelievers. And so as a biblical counselor, as, as someone who'd want to, to minister to people in this situation, one of the first things we do is assess the nature of a person's relationship to God. See right there? No, go back. And I do that even in my clinic as a, as a physician. I know that people aren't coming to me for my Christian worldview necessarily, but I do ask them, you're like, oh, do you go to church or do you have any uh, faith? Do you, uh, do you attend a church or anything like that? Just to kind of tease out and find out if people are believers or not. And it's interesting because there are a number of pastors, not at our church, but pastors that I treat in the community who are on antidepressants, anxiety medications, depression medications, and I try to counsel them and say, you know, um, you and I both know that you know, these medications, and I even tell this to unbelievers, these medications are not going to fix your problems, right? You know that, right? You're not, you're not coming to me for a magic pill. I don't have magic. These medications can help with some of the symptoms that you're experiencing. That's, that's, that's possible, but it's not going to fix your problems. And everybody understands that. I think everybody understands that intrinsically, that you know, I can't fix their life problems with a pill, most people understand anyways. Um, except for mine, anyways, okay. Uh, let's see, so uh, one of the first things we do is we, we assess the, the nature of a person's relationship to God. What is their hope? Do they have hope? Do they have a relationship with the Lord? Do they have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Do they have access to the Holy Spirit? Um, and so on the one hand, I do counsel and treat believers differently from unbelievers. There's a huge difference, of course, between a believer and an unbeliever. But on the other hand, the thing that believers and unbelievers need most is a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and a right understanding of who he is and what he has done. So that's a, a little bit of a biblical anthropology. Okay, biblical principles. It's a long slide. I apologize for it. I just wanted to fit everything on the slide here. Uh, first part, letter A, sin is sin. And the Bible teaches personal responsibility for sin. 
Right, these are passages that are familiar to you. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins will die. Leviticus 5.17, now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, he is still guilty and shall bear his punishment. Romans 2.15, the law of God is written on their hearts. And so we get into the area of, uh, of uh, harmartiology, right? The doctrine of sin, the study and the science, the doctrine of sin. We are, as, as humans, born with a hereditary disorder passed down from generation to generation, which genetically predisposes us to disobedience. And it's called sin or the sinful nature. Right? So it doesn't matter if scientists, we found the gene for alcoholism, we found the gene for homosexuality, we found the gene for addiction. And we see this actually as we study families, we see that some of these things run in families. Right? There are families of alcoholics. Uh, there are families who have problems with addiction. These things do run in families. There are some physical physical manifestations or physical reasons that you might be predisposed to. I know that when I'm tired, my wife says like, you know, your, your, your temper is very short when you're tired. And she's like, you're always tired. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's true, right? There are physical reasons, right? Whether it's genetic, whether it's physical, lack of sleep, you, haven't, you get hangry because you haven't had anything to eat. Um, there are even neurodegenerative diseases that may, may predispose us or tempt us, make us more susceptible to sin. But the Bible teaches us that we are still responsible for our sin, right? Because you, can, you might make the objection, well, like, well, God made me this way, right? I can't control my family history of alcoholism. God made me this way, right? And the answer would be, well, first, God didn't make you this way. Sin did, right? And the second is that, and this is an important um, principle of biblical counseling, God would not command us to obey if he did not also provide the means or grace by which we can obey. And that's the verse on the bottom, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so that is an important uh, concept, a principle of biblical counseling, is that we are responsible for our own sin, and that God would not command us to anything. So, for example, when he says, like, be anxious for nothing, God would not command us to something. Um, he does not also give us the grace to obey. Okay, so, uh, and we're going to come back to that in a number of weeks, uh, that idea also. Okay, so let's see. Letter B, symptoms are for a reason. Suffering is for a reason. So, as I said before, psychotropic medication, which I gave you a whole long list of last week, and if, you, if you're curious about that, I think we're going to post... Um, the PowerPoint from last week and this PowerPoint also online, along with the messages, the recordings. Psychotropic medication can help to improve symptoms, but it does not fix problems. The problem is sin, and it's either the proximate cause of sin or the root cause of sin. So I'm not saying that necessarily everybody who is, uh, who is in a difficult situation is because of their sin. I mean, that would be like Job's friends, right? Job is suffering, and Job's friends say, like, you know, the reason you're suffering through all this is because of your sin. And, and Job says, well, actually, I think, I think I'm blameless before the Lord. And the Lord would corroborate that in that situation. But we would say that sin is either the proximate cause of sin or the root cause of sin. And the root cause has to do with uh, the harmartiology uh, and having Adam as our federal head, plunging all of humanity into sin. And so this principle allows for the occasional organic disease that can contribute to symptoms. Right? The symptoms, again, symptoms are for a reason. Symptoms and suffering, they tell us that something is wrong. 
symptoms and suffering point us to Christ, right? Why would we give a medication to cover them up? I think this, if, uh, I, I don't really follow politics, but I just recently saw an article about the recent Democratic debates. Have you mentioned that? There's a, there is a candidate who was talking about antidepressants and how antidepressants are, just have a numbing effect. And, they, and she said, why would you cover up you know, suffering as part of the normal human condition? Right? Sadness is, a normal, is a part of the normal human condition. Why would you cover that up with, with medications? So I don't, I don't know anything about her background. She's apparently a spiritual advisor or something like that. I've written books on that kind of thing. But uh, even the world understands in some measure that you know, symptoms and suffering are there for a reason, and we don't necessarily need to cover those all up. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, truly for any of us, right? If we didn't understand our own sin, if we don't come to understanding of our own sin and suffering and trials, maybe we wouldn't have come to the Lord. Right? It's those who are weary and heavy laden, right? If we have a perfect life, you know, that's part of the, the challenge in, in, in sharing the gospel with people who have a quote-unquote, quote-unquote, in their mind, perfect life. They don't see the need for the Lord. And so we have to tell them about their sin. We have to tell them about their struggles and their suffering and the futility of their, their lives. James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? So trials are for a reason. that The Lord would, would, in our lives, produce endurance. Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so symptoms are for a reason. Suffering is for a reason. God is sovereign over these things, and he's given us these things for a reason, not necessarily so that we'd run to the doctor and get a prescription. Right? And, I, and I tell my believing patients this, like, Look, when you have a panic attack, right, I want you to go to the Lord. Don't go to your medicine cabinet for a pill. Right? Because then you begin to, and then the, medica the medication can make you drowsy, can take the edge off, and then you begin to psychologically begin to depend on that pill. Every time you have anxiety, every time you have fear, every time you have a panic disorder, I've had patients, they, they're running through the house, tearing, tearing out like, the cabinets, trying to find their pill. Right? For believers, the Lord would want you to turn to him. All right, another case. I had the opportunity to minister to a man who was dying. He was a dying Christian man who had chronic pain, right? And he was asking me, like, why is God allowing me to suffer in this way? Right? And, and, and I had to remind him that God is sovereign over the symptoms. He's sovereign over suffering, and he's sovereign over pain. And uh, it's a difficult question, but I would say, you know, God could take away your pain, your suffering, your cancer, if he wanted to, Right? He could if he wanted to do that. And we'll pray that he would, right? We'll pray that he would, but it may not be God's will. But at the same time, God can bless us through suffering. We can glorify God through our suffering and pain. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There's a brother named Jason in Christ Bible Fellowship in Malaysia, and he is dying of cancer. He's had, uh, I don't even know what type of cancer it is, but stage four cancer. He's had a number of courses of chemotherapy. It was in remission for a while, but now it's back with a vengeance. And the doctors over there have determined, like, look, you won't survive another round of chemotherapy. And so he's just consigned to allowing cancer to take over his body. But he's using the opportunity, and I should share some of these, these sharings with you. With you. Uh, he's using the opportunity to glorify God 
in his suffering and in even his dying, he's using that to minister to his family and friends who are not believers. All right, so God can bless us through suffering, we, and we can glorify God through our suffering and pain. Right? A warning that I would say, though, is a caution as we, as we delve into delicate areas like this. We can never really know the degree of someone's suffering and pain. It's difficult, even though they may, they may um, articulate that. And, and when I talk to my patients about that, they say, like, well, should I take pain medication for this pain? And I would tell them, well, like, well you know, I can't answer that question necessarily, because I don't know. You can tell me what your pain is on a pain scale. You can show me the, the happy faces or smiley faces on a pain scale. Uh, you can give me the number of pain. There isn't a, an objective criteria for when somebody who is suffering and in pain needs, uh, like, a medication to help. So um, we should be very slow to judge someone who is taking medication to alleviate suffering and pain, even psychotropic medication, even, even psychotropic medication. In general, the alleviation of suffering is a good and compassionate thing. And so for my, my patients who are unbelievers, right, I, of course I'll give them a psychotropic medication or a pain medication, right? They need the gospel, and that's what I'll try to give them if they allow me to. But it is a compassionate thing to do is to give an unbeliever a, a pain medication or a psychotropic to, to alleviate some of their pain and suffering. The Bible does not prohibit the use of medications to alleviate pain or suffering, but it is more concerned with motive, motives and issues of the heart. Proverbs 31, 6-7, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. I think, I think this is more applicable to unbelievers, of course, because they don't have the hope of Christ. But there is a biblical principle about trying to alleviate pain and suffering. So I'll segue, I'll use that to segue into this question. And this is a question I get asked often. Is there any reason for a Christian to use a psychotropic medication? And so we'll answer that question um, slowly. Uh, point number one, as we mentioned in our uh, discussion of biblical anthropology, non-believers need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believers need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture, 1 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And mental health disorders are primarily spiritual disorders, not chemical ones, not physical ones like diabetes or an infection. So I would say a principle that I have, a principle is that I don't believe that psychotropics should be used in believers because we have the Word of God, we have Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the analogy I give to people is like, um, it's like you live next door to a fire station and there's a fire in your house. And instead of calling for help from the fire station next door, you pick up a toy squirt gun and you squirt it onto the fire that's ravaging your house. Is it going to help? Is that squirt gun going to help? Yeah, it might help with some of the, you know, some of the fire. Psychotropics may help with some of the physical symptoms, but psychotropics do not help with the root issue. The solution is right there, right? So in that scenario, again, that person whose house is on fire, they're using a squirt gun to squirt it on their problems when they could just ask for help from the fire station next door. Likewise, believers who have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, who have the Word of God, who have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, they have eternal, unfathomable resources available to them. And so going to the doctor for psychotropics is like using a squirt gun. So another principle for believers, 
Is that there? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't matter how traumatic the situation or circumstance is, and it's almost irrelevant because God is sovereign over all of our circumstances, right? That's the principle. In practice, we want to point believers to the gospel. We want to point believers to a Christ-centered biblical counseling. That's the first thing we want to do, right? We want to help believers through prayer, meditation, introspection, biblical counseling, discipleship, to come to a point where they have a biblical understanding of their issues. And I would say, I think, that it's the last bullet here, that medication can be a last resort. Medication may help with the symptoms while you continue to address the heart issues. Medication can be used not because of failure of the word of God, but more to help a weaker brother or sister with the symptoms while we continue to address the heart and counsel them biblically. All right, so there may be questions on that. Uh, we'll be available to discuss that further afterwards. So where we are on the outline, we talked about uh, God's perspective, the mind-body connection, biblical perspective, anthropology, biblical principles, including harmartiology. Let's talk about biblical principles on each of these quote-unquote mental health diseases and then talk about what we're not fighting diseases. So number, number one, letter A, general anxiety disorder. And I'm not going to go through the, uh, the secular definition of general anxiety disorder. We did that last week. But as I talk about it from the biblical perspective, there are three types of fear. Right? The Bible describes three types of fear. There is, number one, natural fear. Right? Like if you are sitting in an enclosure with a lion, you should be afraid. Right? I would be afraid. That's understandable to have that kind of natural fear. Sometimes a lack of natural fear is prideful and dumb. You see people kind of like, you know, they're online safari, they get out of the car, they want to pet the kitty cat, those kinds of things. Like, that's prideful and probably dumb. Um, so that's natural fear. Number two is sinful fear. And how do you define a sinful fear? And I think that's up here. Sinful fear prevents us from obeying God's command. Sinful fear causes us to disobey God's commands. Sinful fear can cause us to act selfishly. Sinful fear comes from unbiblical thinking or it comes from unbelief or a lack of faith. So that is how we define, how do you know if something is a sinful fear versus a natural fear, right? And the third type of fear is holy fear, and that applies to fearing the Lord. And holy fear, the fear of the Lord brings joy, peace, assurance, and confidence. And what I wanted to say, wanted to say about fear is that fear or anxiety, however you want to define it, and let's say respect or love are inextricably linked and proportionate. So the thing that I fear the most, oftentimes, is the thing that I love the most, right? And so if, if I love my family the most, let's say it's an idol in my heart, right? Like the safety and security of my kids uh, and my wife. If that is the thing that I f love the most, right? It's an unnatural or an unbiblical love in my life that's, that's an idol, then Naturally, one of the things that I'll be afraid of is that something would happen to them. And that, that, that love or that idol in my heart could become out of balance. It can cause fear and anxiety. Oh my goodness, something's gonna happen. I don't know where all my kids are right now. Where are my kids right now, actually? They're in children's ministry. But you know, you could have that fear. And so fear and anxiety and respect or love are kind of two sides of the same coin. And if they're out of balance, it could become sinful. And that oftentimes leads to anxiety. So uh, what's necessary is an examination of anxiety and fears. And when you examine what people have, or have anxiety and fear about, oftentimes it reveals idols in their hearts. All right, biblical perspective on panic disorder. Panic disorder is usually associated with an intense, overwhelming fear of death. 
loss of control, fear of panic attack, a perceived threat, seeking after quick relief or escape. And so oftentimes, as you talk to people who've suffered with panic disorders, there is an idol of safety, of comfort, of well-being. People tend who, who suffer from this tend to focus on feelings rather than God's promises. That's number three. Number four, um, they often seek comfort and refuge from something other than God. As I mentioned, they, they may turn to a relationship. They may turn to distractions, uh, entertainment. They may turn to medication. Uh, but they're turning to something other than God for relief, for comfort, for refuge from their fear. Number five, Christians should have no fear of death. And there's a verse from Hebrews. I think we're going to skip that just for the sake of time um, that talks about that. All right. Uh, and then finally, there is oftentimes a lack of trust in God's protection. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Right? The Bible doesn't prevent us the Bible doesn't promise us that the onslaught of the wicked won't come. Right? The Bible doesn't promise us that we're going to live a life free of trial and tribulation. Actually, it's the opposite. Right? As believers, the Bible promises that we will suffer for Christ. But it says, do not be afraid when it comes. Next, depression. Depression. Depression is usually, as I've counseled people and, and interact with people, even in secular uh, unbelievers, depression is usually caused by a disparity and how a person expected their life to be and where they are now. So a common refrain that I hear from people is like, I never thought that I'd be a 45-year-old man where my life is like this, right? I always thought that my life would be like this. Right? And it's often that disparity, the difference between their expectations of themselves and their reality that is a measuring stick of their depression. In, in women, this manifestation is often... Uh, they feel depressed, they may feel emotional, they may be tearful, they may have lack of energy and lack of motivation, those kinds of things. And it's just interesting, in men, most oftentimes, when men uh, manifest the symptoms of depression, they are often irritable, impatient, or angry. All right. uh, one of the common themes that we see in depression is discontent that's often rooted in pride. Right? Even this idea that I never would have thought that my life would end up this way, or I would have thought that my life was destined for something better that's often rooted in pride. It can be rooted in distrust, distrust of God's promises and sovereignty, either forgetting it or lacking faith in God's promises and sovereignty. As I mentioned before, it could be expectations not being met, right? not necessarily physical needs, but I'm just talking about their expectations for their life. They may be having joy and pleasure from the wrong things, and it could be idols in the heart. Ezekiel chapter 14 is the, the reference for idols in the heart. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder, as we described before, is an extreme lack of discipline of the mind. Oftentimes, uh, people who have bipolar disorder have prideful delusions of grandeur. I described a lady uh, when I was in an inpatient psychiatric rotation who was convinced that she was, gonna, was engaged to a, a celebrity. Um, and so for these people, um, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to counsel them. But one of the key verses that we use to counsel them in this situation is, finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And so and sometimes we have to confront people, lovingly, compassionately confront people with truth. 
All right, we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time on this one here, schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is sometimes characterized by an extreme lack of discipline of the mind. Uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, because I think this is a useful biblical case example of what the world today would consider a psychotic break or maybe an episode of schizophrenia, and um, we'll see what the cause of it was. All right, Daniel chapter 4 and verses 27 to 37, I'll read. Verse 27 of Daniel chapter 4. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. This is the, the prophet has come to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, with a warning. In verse 28, this is um, Nebuchadnezzar and his testimony. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Verse 30, the king reflected and said, is, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Well, scary words, right? Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High, God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And we're going to continue on in a second. But you see how Nebuchadnezzar's prideful and exalted view of himself was blasphemous and led to his, what we would consider from secular psychology, a psychotic episode, right? Verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So this is an example of what the world would consider from a secular perspective, a psychotic episode, right? And we see here that it was initiated, started because of his prideful, exalted view of himself and his thoughts, right? His blasphemous thoughts. And God says, like, you know what? I'm going to remove it from you right now. But the Lord was gracious to restore to Nebuchadnezzar when he repented. All right, Roman numeral seven. This is an important one, too. We are not fighting mental health disorders. So a reminder to all of us that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. It's not about chemicals. It's not about genes. It's not about family history. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. First Peter 5, 8 to 10 be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle, our fight, is not against flesh and blood, or chemicals in the brain, for example, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are not fighting mental health disorders. So generalized anxiety, panic disorder, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, what, what do people with these disorders have in common? Oftentimes what we've seen is an intense inward focus. Right? They're focused on themselves, they're focused on their thoughts, their emotions, how people have harmed them, how people have wronged them, how people have damaged their pride. The Bible calls this selfishness. Right? It is a lack, oftentimes, of gospel-centeredness. We see that there, there can often oftentimes um, come a pattern of wrong and unbiblical thoughts, and this has become a habit, and I see this in people, right? Um, all of our minds kind of wander down different trails sometimes, right? When we're, you know, we're not at work, we're not engaged in something that's requiring our mind, it might be before we go to sleep, it might be, you know, in the shower, or whatever the case may be, sometimes our minds, we allow our minds to wander down certain paths. But we have to be careful about those paths. We have to use the Word of God to discipline our minds so we stay on biblical paths. And people who suffer from some of these disorders, a lot of times they've allowed their mind to wander down these paths so easily that they can be at the end of that path in a second, right? So you might have a thought like, well, why is life worth living? And maybe I'm just, I'm suffering. I'm, I'm sinning against my wife and my kids. I'm causing them to have angst and yada, yada, yada. And you, and, and you go down that path and you say, like, you know what, I should, I should end my life. Right? I should end my life, right? And we, let's, we step back a second. That's, that's a crazy thing, right? That's, that's unbiblical, right? That's selfish. That's, you know, all those kinds of things. But for somebody who allows their mind to go down that path continually, it's like muscle memory. It's like you're training your mind to go down that path, and you can get to that end point very quickly, right? So in biblical counseling, so much of the help that we have or the work that we do is helping people see their heart issues, but also retraining the mind not to think certain ways. And this takes practice and repetition, and which is why in biblical counseling, homework is such a big part of what we do, because we are trying to retrain people's minds. There are principles of putting off the old and putting on the new, renewing the mind with the word of God through scripture, through memory of scripture, and disciplining the mind to think biblically. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 through 6, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Every wrong thought, every, as you begin to wander down those wrong paths, you take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Romans 12.2, the next slide. Romans 12.2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And the work of biblical counseling is, is taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and renewing our minds. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, as I mentioned before, this is a very common verse used in biblical counseling. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Okay, so this is the outline of where we're at. We have talked about, uh, we've gotten through, we are not fighting mental health disorders. We're going to move on to areas of discomfort. Areas of discomfort. 
So, you know, I, I kind of hesitated to, to bring this up, but I thought it would be a good instructive. Um, I want to share with you some areas of discomfort. And, and I do this in humility because I don't have all the answers. We don't ex pretend to have all the answers. There are these things that sometimes keep me up at night. What about things like Alzheimer's disease, dementia, tumors or infections of the brain, trauma to the frontal lobes of the brain? Can't they cause behavioral disturbances or even sinful behavior? I've taken care of a number, of, some of the doctors in here have taken care of a number of patients in the late stages of these conditions. And sometimes these people are completely unable to think clearly. Sometimes they say hurtful, angry, awful, or profane things to their family members out of nowhere and without any provocation. And it's difficult to see, right? Is it possible that someday somebody will discover that anxiety or depression is caused by some yet-to-be-discovered vitamin deficiency, and that all we need to do is take a vitamin or a supplement or a, a, some neurotransmitter supplement, and it will, quote-unquote, cure our anxiety or depression? Is it theoretically possible? Maybe, right? And so we want to tread carefully. I would say it seems pretty unlikely, but we want to tread very carefully. We believe that even though there are, dis there are conditions that may predispose, tempt, or make us susceptible to sin, we are still responsible for our sin. And, and believers, this is the exercise of our faith. Right? This is how we exercise our faith. We believe in the word of God. We believe in his promises. We believe in the truths of scripture. And this is how we exercise our faith. We believe that God would not command us to obey if he did not also provide the means or the grace by which we ought to obey. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We want to exercise our faith. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So those are some areas of discomfort. All right, uh, I, wanna, I do want to talk about, in the, the, just the remaining minutes we have here, pitfalls and cautions for biblical counseling. Letter A, one of the pitfalls or cautions of biblical counseling is legalism. Right? And we have seen this done uh, unwisely. The word of God needs to be wielded with wisdom and grace. Right? Care must be taken to prevent from falling back into a performance-based mindset right? or creating new extra-biblical rules for people to live by. We have to be careful when we, when we counsel one another that we don't fall into legalism. Letter B, being judgmental. Sometimes it's hard to understand the struggles of another person, especially if you've not struggled with a particular sin or temptation ourselves. Like, my wife says that, like, you know, Huey, I wish that you were, you don't have a fear of man, right? It's one of the things I don't really struggle with, by God's grace, right? She's like, I wish you would fear man a little bit more, right? Um, but it may be difficult for me to understand somebody who does struggle with a fear of man, and it's easy for me to become judgmental towards that person because it's not something that I struggle with personally. So we need to remember that we all have our own struggles and that it's only by God's grace that we don't have the same struggle as another person. It's not because we're better. It's not because we're more spiritual or more mature. It's all God's grace. Letter C, lacking compassion. And this is somewhat related to being judgmental. Right? 
And let's see, do I have enough time to talk about this? I don't. Okay. I just wanted to uh, just a brief thing about how the beginning of biblical counseling in, in, in Jay Adams, as the father of biblical counseling, he was a very strong man and sometimes lacked compassion in his counseling. I've seen videotapes that were like, wow, that was really harsh. Um, and so sometimes that has created a culture of lacking compassion in biblical counseling, in the biblical counseling community. Uh, I did want to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 really fast. And so those who have, chosen, have, who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. All right. And 2 Corinthians is another verse that talks about the need for compassion. All right, and then another pitfall or caution for biblical counseling as we wrap up here is letter D, oversimplifying. Right, oversimplifying. It's like, uh, and I've fallen into this myself. Memorize these two verses and call me in the morning. Right? Um, biblical counseling is a, is a work that requires effort, and time, and patience, and perseverance, and wisdom. Right? We want to present everyone complete in Christ, and it is a goal that requires all of us to continually strive and labor according to His power, which mightily works within us. We don't want to oversimplify people's problems and say, like, just memorize these two verses and call me in the morning. All right, letter E, blaming. And this is just for lack of a better term or lack of a better title. And this had to do with my own questions and concerns. When I was in the Master's of Biblical Counseling program at Master's, and I didn't finish it, um, but I had professors, uh, teachers, John Street, Wayne, Max, Stuart Scott, and even Lou Priolo is a biblical counselor who's spoken at our church a number of times. And this is a question that I asked many of them. And, and this is a problem that I had as I was going through the, the coursework, right? It just seemed like people are coming to us for help and we turn around and we blame them for their problems. It seems a little antithetical to the idea of helping people. And so I ask each of my professors this question. And I think to varying degrees, they affirm that this was a tendency in biblical counseling. That they understood that, that they saw that. And to the best of their ability, they, under, they, they tried to explain, well, this is their explanation. Um, people who come to us for help, um, we can't control what other people are doing to them. We can't control their circumstances. We can only help them control their own attitudes and thoughts and actions, right? They can't control what other people do to them, so it makes sense that we would focus only on what we control, which is that person's attitudes and heart and actions. So I think that's totally true, right? It's totally true, but I just was, the feeling that I got was I was still lacking in focusing on compassion. And I think that there was a, a letter by Heath Lambert that was written, letter F, in 2013, Heath Lambert became the president of NANC. NANC was the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. They since changed their name because everybody was like, what's, what's a Neuthetic Counselor, right? So they changed the name to the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And in 2013, Heath Lambert became the president of this uh, organization. And so he wrote an, a letter by Heath Lambert, president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Have you been burned by a NANC counselor? And you can, there's a link to the whole letter here. I just wanted to quote some of that out, out of here. From his letter, many have been burned by counsel that is a distortion of what would be offered by the wonderful counselor and has therefore been damaging. I confess that our practice has too often fallen short of the high biblical standard for which we aim 
and I am deeply sorry. Please forgive us. So when he took the helm of this counseling organization, there was at least in some measure in my mind a recognition of like, like we've, we've been lacking something in our biblical counseling. And so he, as he was taking the helm of this organization, he's like, we're going we're gonna to do, do it right. We want to do it better. Please forgive us. All right, so how, letter G, just to wrap it up, how can we protect against and prevent these pitfalls? Many of these pitfalls can be prevented by having a gospel focus, remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. As we minister to other people, as we counsel them, to prevent us from becoming uh, legalistic, to prevent us from becoming judgmental and prideful in ourselves, to, to, to cause us to become compassionate, we remember how much God has forgiven us. We remember how patient the Lord is with us when we repeatedly sin against him. We remember that Jesus Christ died, having nailed our sin to the cross, in order that we might walk in newness of life. We remember that our hope is not in living a life free of pain. It's not in living a life free of turmoil or struggle or trial or even sin. Our hope is in Christ, and that we can be as faithful as possible in this life, but that we get to be with him in eternity when we will be free of all of those things. And so having a gospel focus is critical to biblical counseling. All right, next week, Pastor Isaiah is going to be teaching on the methodology of biblical counseling. How do we actually physically do biblical counseling? And maybe some things to watch out for as well. Let me close in prayer as we end. All right, let's pray. Lord God, just thank you again so much for this time. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, you truly have given to us the mind of Christ and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ. And God, if you have given Christ for us, what would you withhold from us? Nothing. There's nothing that you would withhold from us. And there's nothing that can separate us from your love. And so, Lord, I thank you. And I pray that as a church, that we would grow in our ability to counsel one another with Scripture. That we would do so with, a, with an eye on the cross, with a heart of the gospel, with a heart of compassion. That we might present our fellow brothers and sisters complete, mature, perfect in Christ. So that you would receive the praise and glory to your name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.